0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Hello, Josh. Hello. How are you this evening? Excellent. Great. And uh, we'll get to our profile of the night, Monette Maluski of Embacol Insurance, in just a few minutes. But first, uh, shall we go over some of the entrepreneurial news of the week? Let's do it. And uh, that's what we usually do at the start of the show. And uh, before we get to some of the headlines, we just, of course, had Mayor Denis Cadell live uh, downstairs at CJ80 in our studio. And um, there is obviously continues to be groans from Montreal entrepreneurs, particularly when it comes to construction and traffic. But um, tell me, Josh, in your view, what really should uh, should Mayor Cadell or should the municipal government be doing to better foster uh, a better climate for entrepreneurship in Montreal?
2: Um, well, you know, we can probably spend a, the whole hour just talking <laughs> about that. But certainly quickly, I mean, the, the whole goal, I mean, the the world is getting smaller. How can we bring, how can we attract people to the city so that our economy can grow not just with the people... That live and and work here and trying to grow their own business, but attracting other people. How do we make it easier for them to get around? You talk construction. How do you make it easier for them to or attract them to come and and visit our our location? That's that's kind of one aspect to bring in other people. You know, the the Grand Prix that comes in. I mean, it's it's a huge moneymaker for the city because it attracts so many people. Just like the festivals, they come in and they attract a lot. So, what else can be done by the city as incentives to get people to come in I would say you know movement around the city is probably you know you you hear a lot of grapes from entrepreneurs and we've had a few on air that say you know I had to survive two three years with the street work uh, you know in front of me and you know what I had to reinvent or do and survive just so that people can knew they could walk into the store and not be caught so that's kind of a big thing and and, you know you're always going to have construction but can there be enough communication so that we know what's happening?
1: And certainly when it comes to parking, I think, is, is probably a big issue for a lot of people. Taxes as well. Do you, do you hear that complaint a lot?
2: Uh, well, taxes, no question. It's always there. The question is, what are they going for? And are they going to really help improve the business environment? Or are they going to help other areas that maybe are a little ancillary that don't directly affect? And I think that's where some of the misunderstandings come in. I I think a lot of it is, do we know what's happening with the money that goes out? And while a number of people know, I think the average entrepreneur isn't 100% sure.
1: Let's talk a bit about the holiday gift season because that's around the corner, believe it or not, actually. And uh, this new report uh, shows that uh, it could, well, first of all, it could be a tough season for a lot lot of people. And uh, also the suggestion in terms of boosting your business um, when it comes to the Christmas season, highlight your brands. Tell us about that report
2: uh you know there there was a, a story in the in the financial post that was talking about leveraging your customers your suppliers uh and more your suppliers to boost your name boost the foot traffic uh and share the resources because as we you know retailers there's a lot of them that have their own brand but there's a lot that carry others whether you know the big brands of the world the louis Vuittons and the chanels and all that stuff use them leverage them because they all have their marketing budgets too and they all want to display their product and have their their product well known throughout and they know that if that if they help the entrepreneur and the retailer then their products sell even more so you have to leverage it. can't be afraid to go to your suppliers and say i want to help you sell more but you got to help me kind of a scratch my back i'll scratch yours with a total mutual benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, China continues to have large interest in Canada for energy,
1: but for other things too. Uh, this story is also from from the Financial Post. is about wine. Uh, tell us about the incursion incursion of Chinese investors in that uh, in that Canadian uh, industry.
2: Well, in in this particular example, it's about wine in the B.C. region, and and this uh, Chinese uh, investor that came in, and the father was supporting the the efforts of his daughter. But the message here is more about where are capital investments coming from to begin with uh and can the the influx of money coming in from overseas really help business you know you have a bit of a bit of a a mixed thought process on it saying well they're taking you know it should be canadians that grow canadian business there is, at some point, a limited amount of capital, and if we can influx a lot of money into the Canadian system, well, then, certainly, that can only benefit in the long run, uh, you know, creating jobs, uh, creating a flow of goods, and it's not just about bringing money in he- into our system, it's also about knowing that the world is getting smaller and being able to export that product back to where the investment came from, and that just, that, that drives an economy.
1: Well, let's uh, deal with coffee wars really quickly here, because uh, some disappointing news from Second Cup, of course. Uh, They're not doing so well in terms of the coffee wars between Starbucks, Tim Hortons, McDonald's. Uh, They posted a $26 million loss in the third quarter of this year, 10th consecutive quarterly decrease um, in in sales. Uh, What's going on with Second Cup? I mean, essentially, we're all
2: dealing with the same product here. Is it a question of marketing? Well, I th- I think there's a couple of aspects at play here. Certainly marketing. I mean, you know, to differentiate yourself between one coffee company and another, uh it's all coffee. It, it's hu- it's, a, it's you know, I'm not a coffee drinker. <laughs> I, I might have my other vices that I drink, but but coffee's not one of them. And and when you're when you have this really severe competition, um you really got to differentiate yourself. So, what's going to make you different? What's going to make you, you know, that green mermaid or or whatever it may be? How are you going to service it differently? What experience can you give that consumer? That's not going to be like everywhere else. That's going to drive the the business into your door, but that's only the part of it. The other part of it is realizing that, hey, you know what? Not every idea, not every location is a winner. Monitor your business, look at the numbers, see what's producing. Don't just have a store to have a store. I understand the flagship parts where you have it in the, the prime area and maybe it's a loss leader. But if an entrepreneur is not really looking at their business closely enough and often enough, uh, you know, they can they can stand on their head and spit nickels and there's only so far they're gonna go. Maybe they should reband to Trump coffee because
1: apparently whatever Trump <laughs> touches turns to gold, except uh, it's not going so well for Mr. Trump in Toronto.
2: And uh no, it's it's not. I mean you know he's building this huge tower that had phenomenal expectation whether it was from the name alone or, or the fact that, you know, Toronto just kind of breeds money so much. Uh, But the reality is you got to know your market. And just because there's a Trump name on it doesn't mean that it was the perfect time to build a monster tower. You know, not everybody, you know, they say you hear that there's so much money in the market, you know, people are ready to invest, but from a consumer standpoint, from a business standpoint, people are still looking at their pockets. They're still looking at the dollars and cents and to go and spend $600 a night in a Trump hotel, uh, it's just not in everybody's wheelhouse. It's just not every entrepreneur and every business that can really handle those dollars. So especially in times like these, especially in the last five years, uh, and even in the last few years when companies are looking to say, how do we improve our bottom line? So it may not have been a
1: disaster for Canada after the 2008 uh, downturn, but it's not exactly a
2: period of, uh, of immense growth, is it? It's, it's not, but you, it doesn't mean that there's, there's no capability. It doesn't mean that it's not possible. You just have to find your niche, and you have to be a little bit different, and you have to know how best to get the word out. It's one thing to create this phenomenal product or service. Nobody knows about it, then you know, you're know you dead in the water. Flip side of the coin is you can be fantastic at marketing and getting all the name out, but if you can't deliver on that product or service or it's copied by somebody else or it's just not unique enough, you're, you're also no better off. Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800. Our
1: profile this evening is Monette Maluski of Embacol Insurance. And we'll get to Monette's profile in just a few minutes at 7.15.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Welcome back. Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you on today's Entrepreneur. And our guest this evening is Monette Maluski of Embacol Insurance. Monette, welcome to CJAD. Thanks. Uh, thanks for uh, for coming along, and uh, so we're told very few a- very few answers to questions we will begin with no tonight. So uh, I want to get that insurance joke out of the way first of all. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, about your business, Embical Insurance, and uh, and we'll get into the more difficult aspects of um of, of your business in a second and how you came to uh, to head this uh, this firm. But tell us about a bit Embical Insurance.
3: So it's an insurance brokerage firm. It's a family business, which I'm very proud of. And I think what we do best is we provide solutions for individuals and for entrepreneurs, for their families, for their businesses, so that they could really prosper while we try and protect them. So the whole idea is, how can we help really protect the entrepreneur? What's part of what we can do is in order to protect them and while they're going along and doing all the things that they have to do.
2: Is it really, is it one type of insurance? Is it several insurances? Is it different financial planning? So, what kind of products are the ones that you okay, kind of highlight? so
3: we mainly look at, I call it human capital, the protection of human capital. People always say to me, what's human capital, minute, I says, well, it's not a car, it's not a house. It's really the human being, which is the most important capital that we can protect. Because if we don't protect the person then they can't pay the mortgage, and they can't pay for the expenses. So For me, it's looking at the entrepreneur and the individual in his whole environment. So it's not just, we don't sell product. We consult and look at, my biggest question to anybody I'm with, if something happened to you yesterday, is everything in order today? If you died yesterday, is everything in order today the way you'd like it to be? If you got hit by a bus yesterday and you lived, is everything in order today? Coming from the will, coming from your finances. So, though they look at me, and those are the hard questions.
1: The there's an impression that that life insurance is only for high income earners, but uh, but I take it you discourage that 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 impression.
3: Absolutely, because if you think of how insurance began at the very beginning, insurance was put on the market for widows and orphans. It was in England when the marine went off to sea and when they died had to have a basket full of really goods and a basket full of money to be able to help the family and so it really started and I think it's still there it's a social value and it's still there to protect the widows or the orphans or the family in case something happens to you so I really look at insurance of giving people peace of mind so that you have in your drawer All you need to protect your family and then you go along and hopefully you live a wonderful life but the key component to me is what if something did happen to you and not tomorrow because tomorrow's too late in the insurance world it's about yesterday
2: now you weren't doing this forever in a day what was your background did you have background insurance before you came into this business not
3: at all Um, this is my fourth or fifth career so from a child i always wanted to be a teacher and teaching is where I wanted to go, so I ended up being a teacher. And at the end of the day, theres it's too long to even tell the whole story, but all the things that I did, I ended up in the insurance world as, as, I always worked for others. So as a teacher, you worked for others. I ran a union, I ran a school system, I ran a huge community center, I did all of those things, but I always worked for other people. And there was somewhere along the line that I decided that I wanted to work for myself and be an entrepreneur that I wanted to use my skills basically as entrepreneur and put it out there and focus on what I could do best. And I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. My late husband was in the insurance world. That's why the M. Bacall, it was Mike Bacall who was in the world, he was in insurance since the 70s. Basically, he had been in the mutual funds before and so on and so forth then. A lot of friends of mine kept telling me that teachers and people in the educational field would make great insurance brokers Because you have the skills to talk to people and teach and give knowledge, which often people miss when they want to learn about something. And insurance to me, the key to it is giving, I'm a teacher. I am teaching people basically how and what to look for. I'm giving them knowledge so that they can make good decisions. So it's not about the product, but it's more about knowledge and understanding of where they are. So it was a natural and I went back to school. I had originally had my, my degrees from McGill, from, from McDonald College, but I went back to get my business certificate, and interesting enough, I'm still in school. I'm this year in my final two months of taking a certificate. There's only 115 people across Canada, and it's a certificate that I will become an advisor for family enterprises, because that's really missing, and so that's where I am. Hopefully, by February, I'll have written on my exams and I will be certified.
1: And uh, Manette Malusky joining us from Ambacol Insurance tonight. And after the break, Manette, we'll get into the circumstances under which, the tragic circumstances under which you became an entrepreneur and how you overcome that, Have uh, you overcame that adversity. So we'll get to that next. It's uh, 724.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Welcome back to today's entrepreneur. Our guest this evening is Monette Maluski of Mbacall Insurance, and the name Embacal, of course, Monetta uh, is from your late husband, who uh, who was uh, head of that company. Uh, let's, it took a, a turn for for the tragic. I know it's, it must be difficult to talk about, but if if you don't mind, uh, you know, tell us the backstory about how you took over your husband's company and and how you sort of worked through the challenges after that.
3: Yeah, that was that was not an easy one. I had entered the business actually this year in November. It's 20 years. I just realized as I'm talking to you. So I entered in, 19, in 1994. And um, for four years, I was working with him. But by 1996, he already got sick. He had cancer. And uh, we were working together. But by 1998, he passed away. So the key is that I was doing my own business at the time because he was very comfortable with what he was doing. I was moving to redevelop the side that I knew and the side that I wanted, which was my friends, which were uh, female entrepreneurs, uh, going in a whole di- different direction than him. And when he passed away, four years is not a long time, but I did have four years under my belt, which was a good thing. And so I remember saying, okay, he was somebody who didn't use technology. Everything was in his head. So there was very little in the in, in the files. I didn't even know who some of my clients were. Uh, so what I had to do basically is figure that out. So what I ended up doing is Writing all the insurance companies and asking them for a list of my clients, so at least I knew how many clients I had because that was, everything was in his head. It was not; he was an old school guy, and that is was. Is that fine. very
2: different today? Today yeah, you have very things different. written down, you and anybody not can only follow? written
3: down, you you have to compliance with the government yeah. today. Are you kidding? All your records, there's all kinds of things you have to put. The compliance today is is really heavy.
2: So your clients at the time, or Embarkal Insurance clients at the time were really reliant on your late husband. That's who they knew. That's who they trusted. Absolutely. And now you're stepping in, going, "Who the heck is this person? And how do I trust her? How does she know? How do you? How do you get that knowledge? How do you convince those clients that you're okay to deal with? That you can ha- now
3: have that knowledge." So that's a great question because that's exactly I thought originally that I didn't know how many clients that I could just phone them all, and then I realized I couldn't. So I spent two days at home, really thinking like an entrepreneur would, figuring out their business plan, where they're going, what they're doing. And I felt the only way I could do this was to write a real letter to every one of those clients. But a letter that kept my husband's name where it was, the trust, the integrity they had, and convincing them that he had had enough time to pass the torch to me, and that I would be able to continue it. And that's basically, so my letter was very strong and it really gave him all the credit that he had, but then the fortune that I had of having him being able to give me and pass the torch to me and learn that everything that he did, and then I told them that I would call them a month before the anniversary date of their policies, but if they wanted to see me before, I would be more than pleased. I had four or five of them
1: come Hmm. in. Monette Maluski of Embacol Insurance, our guest this evening on Today's Entrepreneur. More with uh, Ms. Maluski in just a moment at 7.30. (laughs)
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. And our guest this evening is Monette Maluski of Embacol Insurance. And uh, Monette, we're getting to your story. Of course, uh, your husband tragically passed away very suddenly, and then you found yourself uh, sort of having to take over the business uh, you know, rather quickly. Um, you talk about drafting this letter now to clients saying... Um, you know, things are going to proceed as they, as they are, you know, you're still going to be taken care of, um, the vast majority of your clients, you know, stick around. How do you then try to grow a business that you're only just sort of now taking over? Can you pick up the story from there?
3: Sure. Um, I was lucky, uh, I don't know if it's luck or what, but 96% of his client base stayed with me. Uh, and from there, I think that you, my business grows by reference, My business grows by referrals. So, if you can keep those clients and they're really satisfied with what you're doing, then they're going to refer you to other people as well. So, that was part of how I grew my business. There's no question. But I also am a female who wanted to grow the female part of my business and think that they were now, as I was moving into entrepreneurship, many females were moving into entrepreneurship as well. So, I made a niche as well to look at what is the female market out there in terms of business? And I went after that market as well. And then I also think that my business is a relationships business. So that if you build good relationships and you build your integrity and the trust, even outside of your business, then people can relate that if that's what she can do here, then she can do it in the business. And because I had 25 years behind me of many other things that I did in my life, I was quickly able to move into some of the nonprofit or business centers. So I became a member of the Chamber of Commerce. I was a vice president at the Chamber of Commerce of Montreal. So I put myself out there in many places where I could build my networks and my relationships so that they can help me grow my business.
2: At what point did you ever find yourself spreading yourself too thin?
3: It's a great question. I remember the first time when my husband was still alive, I came in and I had done a really great case and I had really banged it all on and did everything, and then I was so proud. And I said to him, wow, I should spend a lot less time doing my social vocation and my cultural and community work and more time in the business. And he was really smart. He said to me, but it wouldn't be who you are. You are a person that needs both in your life. So you're going to have to find the balance of how you do both. And I've done extremely well. So I think that that in itself speaks for being able, it is part of who I am, I am this person that wants to give back to society. I came here for Europe with my family from nothing. We we were lucky to get educated here, to come to Canada. I'm an immigrant here first, you know, son, I was five years old. So for me, we were successful, I have to give back. So mm-hmm. I think I always look at the balance between the two.
2: So when you, you first kind of, after your husband passed away and you concentrated on keeping the client base, did, did you have a first next step in mind? Like, you know, was, growth there? Did you have to gain certain amount of knowledge first? Did you, did you, of course, as you say, spreading yourself too thin, you just wanted to do everything at once? What was kind of the first top of mind thing that you absolutely had to do?
3: So the interesting part is to keep the client. There's no question. The second part is, you know, when you lose somebody, it's a very hard thing. And losing a husband was, and he was really the love of my life, very difficult. So I threw myself into the business. That's how I ended up focusing, because it gave me an out. It gave me a place that I can go every day, not only hang my hat, but become passionate about what I do. So, Josh, you're absolutely right. Knowledge. I had to get much more knowledge under my belt, so I went and I sought all that knowledge so that I could become an expert. So one of the areas that I had started with was what we call plan giving, leaving legacies in plan giving. And I became an expert throughout Canada, and I'm known throughout Canada as somebody who's extremely knowledgeable in that field. So I did move in an area that really made a marriage of both of who I am, my vocational comfort, as well as my business acumen.
1: Yeah, nearly 20 years later, do you feel the sense that, uh, that you're still sort of trying to honor your husband's legacy or has the business adapted more around yourself?
3: The business has adapted a lot more around myself. Um, I think that I had a chance at one point to change the name and I wouldn't because I think that his name is an important name to me. I'm not sure if people today recognize that the name is because of my husband, so they kind of always ask me how come the Bacall? So I have to go into the story for that. There's no question on that one, but uh, I keep it alive because I knew who he was, and it also helped me create a family business. Because when he died, I brought my daughter into the business, and it was his suggestion. I don't think she would have come in if it was my suggestion. It was his suggestion that she was looking at what to do. She had finished all of her schooling and was not sure. So he says, "Why don't you go work with your mom? She might need you." and She's my future. She's really my, what we call my unique competitive advantage. I have a succession plan. So it's really great from that point of view.
2: No, and part of what you do with your, your clients is talk about succession plans. So, so that's huge. Now, you mentioned before, you know, you get a, you, as, as many people in your field do, you get a lot of business from referrals. It's organic. But I guess that only takes you so far for a certain amount of growth. What about acquisitions? Did you live through any acquisitions over the years?
3: Great question. And my husband died in 98. So I really needed a good three, four years to just consolidate the business, figure out where I'm going, where, where my finances are coming from. I really had to like start again, almost even though I had the client base. Uh, but in 2003, I was approached. Uh, there was a great broker in Montreal, uh, Max Schreier, who owned a well-known, incredible broker. He passed away and Max did some great planning. He had left his family with enough insurance so that they didn't have to rely on the business. And by doing that, he was able to have his family look at who would be the appropriate person to take over the business. It wasn't because of finances. It was about he wanted to make sure that his clients were well taken care of the way he took care of them.
2: Did his family know that's what he wanted for them?
3: Yeah, when I remember, I even knew that. I knew Max very well. And two years before, I had had lunch with him and I knew he was older already. And I said, Do you have any succession plan? Do you have any? He says, Manette, nobody could ever work with me. So I know that I've left my family well. And I know I work with an organization called PPI. And he did too. And he said, I know to call Joe Dickstein and he's going to take care of it. And his family knew it.
2: Now, so when you acquired Max's business and he passed away, What was, I guess, the biggest challenge? What was the biggest lesson learned just from that experience?
3: So that was um, an experience where it's not only about the money, it's about the culture. Do you fit? Do the client base that he has as well as me fit? He was a very different person than me in terms of his personality the only thing that we both love is hockey. He had 18 hockey tickets, and I have to tell you, every time I did my due diligence to go visit clients, they didn't want to know about the insurance, they wanted to know if I was buying any of his hockey seats. So that was really it was part of part of the legacy obviously, and I did like hockey, so it was fine from that point of view. But I think that money is one thing when you're looking at a business, doing your due diligence to see the culture of the people that you're working with. So Max had clients very similar to mine in terms of who they were who they were as entrepreneurs, how much he cared about them and what they cared about him. And I'll give you one specific story. There was an entrepreneur where the son had come to see me about disability insurance. And I was dealing with it and so on and so forth. I asked him, did he have a broker? He said no. And about, about two months later, Max phones me and says, how could you be dealing with him? It's my client. I says, but I asked him. He says, no, 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 the father and so on and so forth. So I phoned him up. And I said to him, you know, you're being really well served, because Max is a great broker, mm-hmm. and he'll do for you exactly what I do, so please, go use him. At the end of the day, Max dies, and guess who my client is? But Same person. Okay.
1: Manette Maluski with us uh, on Today's Entrepreneur. After the break, we'll bring in uh, Nick Moraitis, tax partner at Fuller Landau, and we'll talk about insurance and taxes and more. But first, 745... <laughs>
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Welcome back to today's entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. Our guests this evening, Monette Maluski of Embacol Insurance, our profile tonight, and I'll let's bring in Nick Morita's tax partner at Fuller Landau into the conversation to talk about, of course, well, taxes
2: and insurance. And that's the topic, life insurance. And, you know, certainly entrepreneurs, they got to deal with it. They got to plan for the future. Uh, so, Nick, uh, you know, I could ask you a bunch of complicated questions, but you have so much racing through your head right now. I'll just kind of let you go on maybe what are some of the first or second thoughts entrepreneurs should have when they're thinking about life insurance?
4: Uh, well, well, I think the first one is uh, as as Manette's uh, story today, it can happen that we need the life insurance when we don't expect it. And I think that's something that you have to put into your planning, particularly where you have partners in your business. Uh, And the the question that usually comes up when we're we're talking to our our entrepreneurs is, if God forbid something happens to your partner, are you going to maintain your partnership with the deceased's family? And usually the answer is very quickly no, the business is going to be mine. So then, the question we have is: Well, you, the deceased, um, you're interested in receiving value for your shares because that's an important asset for your family's uh, fortune. Um, how do we secure? Uh, what do we do to make sure that you get paid what you're what you're deserving? And, and we look at very many, you know, several um, matters. First of all, well, how we value shares between the partners. There should be some agreement. There usually has to be required in a shareholder's agreement that says this and this will happen should one of us pass away. And then the critical matter that comes up is, okay, so we we determine the value, et cetera. Well, how are we going to pay this? And if you can think of the person who's surviving and all of a sudden I've got to find money, I have to convince perhaps my bank to give me money to buy, it, to buy uh, my deceased partner's sh- shares at a time when we're probably at a weak moment. And that's where life insurance kicks in, and and I think that some foresight to get the life insurance, get it in place, to have it there that does a lot of things. One, it eases the mind for the person who has to find the money to pay, but it also eases the uh, the mind for the person who is the unfortunate who passes away. At least I know the company will receive funds that are direct are to be directed to my families and through via the shares. And I think that becomes a, a win win for both uh, both sides. Um, and in 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 all this process uh the life insurance uh, many times where we're, we're ter- you know you're buying uh term policies probably um that are designed to come in when you when something uh, will happen or could happen. Um, you're looking at um, is is the life insurance that I'm, I'm looking to acquire equal to the value of the company? Well, it could be equal to the value of the company today, but what happens in 10 years if the f- company keeps going? So provision has to be allowed that in, in case the company's worth X and my insurance is only half of that X, what happens to the excess? How do I get paid? What's the balance? Uh, Etc. So that's why I think insurance at the at the uh, operating company level between uh, partners is something that's vital and and provides funds.
1: More on taxes and insurance with Nick and with Monette Malusky, who will offer up her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. That's next.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: 7:56. Welcome back to today's entrepreneur inspiring stories from outstanding business people. And in studio with us, Monette Maluski of Embical Insurance for one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Uh, just moments away. But first, uh, some more uh, tax and insurance chat with a Nick Morada's tax partner at Florlando.
2: And we're talking about you know life insurance protection for partners that have operating businesses. But there's certainly a lot more cases, a lot more uh, whether it's you don't have a partner, whether you have a different type of business. Uh, what Maybe what other things should entrepreneurs look about look for in life insurance, Nick? If it's not just about partnerships and their operating company.
4: Well, one is just simply the funding of income taxes on death, particularly if uh, if you're not bequeathing the assets to a spouse or you don't have a spouse to bequeath them to. Um, and rather than use the the estate's own uh, cash uh, to to pay the taxes, you have the insurance, and this becomes very important where you where you're in a situation where you're not very liquid and that uh, your estate would have to turn around and sell assets probably quickly and maybe not at the best price to get the cash to pay the taxes. So that's one thing for life insurance. What we as tax practitioners also look at is we we try to use the the insurance to – uh, usually p- post mortem to uh, mitigate against income taxes, perhaps find uh, uh, techniques to reduce the overall tax bill, and that's something that uh, we then look at insurance for. And insurance is also becoming a- become an, uh, sometimes just as an investment. Once you once you've uh, you if you if you have your RSPs to the max, you uh, you have an investment portfolio usually in a in a holding company after you've sold your business. Invest, uh, insurance does become an investment in ability to build. Um, at uh, tax-exempt money uh, in, within the policy that comes to the company on death, tax-free, and then can flow out to the estate as well, tax-free. So that's, these are all options that uh, you have to seriously look at and, and speak to someone who is an insurance uh, specialist, uh, which I do not profess to be.
2: Well, Nick, there's there's no question the complexity, and I'm sure Monette, uh, you know, after her so many d- two decades of experience, can attest the complexity behind insurance products and and what fits the right situation uh, is I think huge. That's the
3: key. It's it's always knowing your client, listening to your client, understanding your client. And then coming up with the best solutions that fit their needs, not your needs.
2: Now, as we come to the last moments of the show, Monette, uh, as we do with every other show and every other experienced entrepreneur, we turn to you and say, what one piece of advice would you give to today's entrepreneur?
3: So I would think that you have to stay relevant and current, that you have to be innovative. And in my business, especially, and I think in everybody's business, you have to really keep building those relationships. But the primary thing is be passionate and love what you do.
2: And I mean that's that's a common theme that we hear very often. Number uh, one, like Nick is suggesting. N- number we one, like Nick is one, suggesting. Yeah. Great advice. Uh, I would say that the the biggest takeaway, and there's always a few, but the biggest takeaway uh, that I got, Dan, out of out of today's show, is keep your eye on the ball. Just know where you're going. You know, regardless of what's going on around you, and maybe as a result of what's going on around you, it's keep your focus, keep your eye on the ball, know exactly what you want to do. Uh, in Monette's case, when her husband passed away uh, earlier than anybody uh, wanted, uh, you know, as difficult as it was, she kept her eye on the ball. She took those couple of days to draft this most important letter and to make sure that that business continued. She made every effort to keep her eye on the ball, and entrepreneurs can learn a big lesson from that. Monette Maluski of
1: Embacal Insurance. Pleasure meeting you, Monette. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Nick Rados, of course, and Josh will be here next week, next Mon- Monday night here at seven o'clock for today's Entrepreneur the Exchange with Stéphane Jandras. Next on CJD, seven o'clock.